Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. I want to thank our sponsors for the series for the year, Dr. Zavi and Bella Morgan, generously sponsored, Lezecher Nishmas, our dear friend, Rabbi Dr. Brian Galbit, Rabbi Baruch Tzvi ben Ruvay Nasson, who lived the life of Torah, Avodos Hashem, and Emunah. This morning's class is also sponsored by Charlie and Susan Rogerstam for Rafu Shlema of their dear Machudin, Yerachmiel Yosef ben Rivka, who should have a Rafu Shlema, and also for Chana Zahava Bas Penina, we should have a speedy and a painless and a full recovery. We should hear Besoros Tovos only good news. We are in the home stretch of our limud of this learning. We'll see if we actually uh, finish this today. And that means I would have to remember to copy something new for next week. We're on Pei Zion in the Sefer of Oba. Be'emunaso Yechia, Tzadik Be'emunaso Yechia. A righteous person is alive with Emuna. As we mentioned in introducing the class each and every week that we've been studying this section, that when you live life with Amuna, when you live life knowing that there's something bigger and greater than yourself, when you don't feel that you are responsible for everything, that you get credit for everything, when you don't have the anxiety of the concern for being able to produce everything, then you're really alive. And a person who has a pulse and looks like they're alive, but they're living without Amuna, is dead even while they are alive. We'll talk more about this and we'll develop this even further as we go. So again, we've been basing this offer of Chaim Vital. A human being is made up of four elements. They're made up of wind, fire, water, and earth. When we have a virus, when there is a symptom within our character, acting with arrogance, with anger, acting with uh, envy, acting with depression, despondency, it really is a reflection of a virus happening in a more internal way. And the reason that we've been addressing this is because Revolba has described that the antidote, the response, the medicine, the therapy is emuna, emuna. It's not easy. It's very, very hard. That's why it takes chizik. It takes constant energy and renewal. We have to be working out that emuna muscle. We have to remind ourselves and be uh, conscientious to, especially in the moments that we tend to forget, to feel and to see Hashem's presence, to defer to Him, to submit to Him, and to uh, lean on Him, and to show appreciation to Him. Okay, so we're on page Pezayin. And Revolba says the following. Kniyas midas tovos bekoach emuna. Until now we've been discussing how Amuna can be a base and a medium in order to strengthen and to remove negative qualities. So until now we've been developing that we have negative character traits. person feels arrogant. You think that you're all that. You think the world revolves around you. You think everyone needs to fall in line to what you want and how you want them to behave. Amuna reminds you a little humility. Amuna reminds you to walk around. We're up to in the second Hallelujah and Siddur snippets. I'll give you a preview to tonight. Hashem supports the Anav. The Anav is the person who's humble and he's Mashpir the Rishayim. He brings those who are wicked and evil down to earth. Why the contrast between the humble and those who are wicked? Those aren't opposites. The opposite of being humble is. Being haughty or arrogant. So why does the Pasuk, why does David HaMelech set it up as, you're either humble, or Rishayim, wicked. And the commentators explain, because the opposite of humble is wicked. A person who's arrogant, arrogance breeds wickedness. The arrogant person with the inflated sense of self, with the ego, who's demanding, who is um, 
abusive to people around them, bullies everyone to fall in line with them, the arrogant person who thinks they have all the answers and they see everything the right way, that arrogant person is bound to make mistakes. The arrogant person will act in a self-destructive way, will sabotage their own success. So the opposite of humility is not arrogance, it's wickedness. Because arrogance leads to and breeds a sense of wickedness. So we talked about the negative qualities and how amuna can be the antidote. Amuna is our answer for how to eliminate and purge those qualities. When we're tempted to feel arrogant, take a deep breath and remember you're not all that. When you're tempted to be envious, take a deep breath and remember you have what you need and don't look at what others have. When you're tempted to give up and be hopeless and helpless, take a deep breath and remember there's a ribona shalom. And with a tremendous sense of faith, lean on Hashem and realize nothing is beyond Him and that you never know what the future holds and what the future will bring. So we've talked about Amuna as the answer to overcome the negative. But Amuna is also the stimulus. It can also be the, the springboard for acquiring positive. Avram Avinu Hayagadol Be'amuna. So Avram was a great person, a great man in his Amuna. Be'avaso v'midas yiraso. In his love of Hashem and his yira. How do you translate the word yira? So, those who have been learning with me know. Now, they're both legitimate. The truth is, good, good comeback, everybody. The truth is, good recovery. There is an element of being able to call yira fear. There's a level of yira sa'onesh. It's a very low level. According to some, it's the highest level. But according to most, yira sa'onesh, fear of punishment, is the lowest level. And I always give the metaphor of ourselves as parents. Those who are blessed to be parents, those who are not yet, should be blessed to be parents. But in the, in the model of the paradigm of parenting, do we want our children to be obedient and to listen to us and to walk in our footsteps because they're afraid of what will happen if they don't? So it depends on their age and maturity level and cognition. And ultimately, if that's what it takes, we're fine with it, right? Do the right thing. And if the reason you're doing the right thing is because otherwise you're going to lose your phone or your driving privileges or you're going to be grounded or I'm not going to put money in your debit card, I can live with that. If it's a choice between you doing the wrong thing or you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, I can live with that. But I failed as a parent. If you're in your teens, you're in your 20s, and the only reason that you're doing the right thing, the only reason that you're following my ideals and my values, the only reason you're walking in the footsteps of my morals is because you're afraid of what I will do to you if you don't, then I failed miserably as a parent. I want you to do the right thing. Why? Not out of fear, but out of a sense of reverence and awe and love. I want you to see the people in your life who are role models and have such a reverence and say, you know what, I could never disappoint my parent. I'm in awe of who they are and who they've become and what they've accomplished and what they've achieved. And I'm in such awe, I have such reverence, I want to be like that. So the Rebbe Shalom says, Yira Sa'onesh, we can have a fear of punishment. If that's going to cause us to do the right thing, it's better than not having a fear at all. But Yira doesn't mean fear, Yira means a sense of awe. So Avram Avinu mastered both. Certainly Avram did the right thing because he didn't want the wrong thing to happen to him, but he did the right thing for a much higher, more noble reason. He did the right thing because he had a year, he was in awe of God. Kaddish Baruch the Almighty is so great, so magnificent, so omnipotent, so awesome, literally so awesome. We have abused that word, that the word awesome means nothing anymore. <laughs> awesome means worthy of our awe, worthy of our awe, so awesome. The pinnacle of Yira he reached when? With the Masa Akedah. That was the message that he received when he succeeded after the Akedah. 
And when he raises his hand to slaughter Yitzhak, and the Mala says, no, stop, don't do it. And why don't you have to do it? Because simply by virtue of your having raised your hand, now I know, with that alone I know, that you have Yiras Elohim. But the Torah spends more time developing not Avram's Yira, not his sense of awe. The Torah spends more time developing instead his sense of Chesed. When the Navi, when the Prophet has to characterize and capture what is Avram's quality, what is it? It's the Midah of Chesed. Titain Emes Yaakov, Chesed Avram. Yaakov is characterized by Emes, by truthfulness. And Avram is captured with the word chesed. Mashma, shepiskat ha-ma'alot chesed. The pinnacle of Avram's qualities, his most impressive, most noble quality is his intuitive, his instinct for chesed. I mean, think about it for a minute. He has surgery with no anesthesia as an adult. And on the third day after his surgery, the worst, the harshest, when he's in the most pain, he insists on sitting outside waiting to greet visitors or guests and the reason he's outside is because it would be more painful for him not to be able to do chesed than it was to have surgery with no anesthesia. Understand what that means? Hashem sends these three malachim because he can't stand to see the pain that Avram is in from the fact that he is not doing chesed. So some of us recoil. We are in enormous pain by the thought of having to do chesed. Some people, I have to do something for someone else cook for someone else, drive somebody else, pick up somebody else, inconvenience myself for someone else, interrupt what I'm doing for someone else, prioritize someone else, ouch, that hurts. Some people are in an unbearable pain by having to do things for others. And others, the disciples of Avram, what we aim and aspire to be, are in pain when we're not doing chesed. Our default, our instinct is to want to help, and if you're trying to block or prevent or I have to hold back my drive to help, that's what causes the pain. How do we understand that being a Baal Chesed, right? Not just doing Chesed, but being a person who's refined their character to intuit and to react with an instinct of Chesed, how is that the most noble of Avram's character traits? Why is that the highest? How did Avram reach this level? How did he get there? And where did he learn that he had to behave that way? Who says? If you really think about it logically and with justice, what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. Why do I have to share mine with you? Why do I have to share my time, my resources, my energy, my love, my home, my food? Why? That's not just. What's just, what's most correct is what's yours is yours, what's mine is mine. But the idea that I have to take what's mine and give it to you, where in the world did he learn that from? So the Rambam writes, Rambam Kosev in Hochaz Avar Zara, Alis Aluso Shal Avram Avinu, Kevin Shadingbal Itan Zais Chile Shotet Bedaita Vukatan, Valachshu Biyom of Alaiba, Valiba Meshotet Maven at Shahisik Derecha Emes Vehaven Kav at Sedek Medaito Anachona, Viada Shiesham Aloka Echad Vumaniga Gagal. Derecha Emes, he Amuna Babori is Borach. You know where he learned it from? He simply sat and he tried to think and he tried to arrive at what is truth, what is real, what is authentic. What is everlasting? And the conclusion he came to is that this world is so much bigger than himself. The conclusion he came to is that life is not about me, and life is not about the here and now, and life is not about my pleasure. Life is about something much bigger. There is a creator. We didn't come to be from nothing. 
who bore as haulam amenas lahetil the nevroim. And he came to the conclusion that God didn't create a world because somehow that does something for him. Because God doesn't need anything. He's infinite. He's omnipotent. He's perfect. By definition, God doesn't need anything. So why did God create the world then? If it's not fulfilling and satisfying any need of his, why then did he create the world? And he came to the conclusion because God wanted to give himself to the world. The greatest kindness that he could give was himself. He was overflowing with this need to give. Now we just said he has no need, so we don't really understand what that means. It's the ultimate of benevolence. It's the ultimate of altruism. You see, every benevolent act we do is not entirely benevolent because it always has a little bit of a kickback. So I volunteer at the hospital and visit the Jewish patients. Why do I do that? So hopefully partially for altruistic reasons because I want to bring a smile to someone's face, but I also do it because it makes me feel good that I spend my time visiting the hospital. Maybe because I want to tell everyone that I spend my time visiting the hospital. Maybe because I want to be recognized or I want to get the Ishes Chayal, the Chesed Award, and I want them to all talk about how I visit the hospital. But even if it's because it makes me feel good, I don't tell anyone in the world. It's purely anonymous. Nobody knows. I go and I spend my time volunteering and I don't tell anyone. But even so, I'm getting a geschmack out of the fact that I'm doing something and not telling anyone and aren't I amazing in my own mind because I'm doing something so noble and I don't need to tell anyone. So the human being by definition, by definition, has automatically, inevitably, invariably a little kickback from even the good that we do. But HaKadosh Baruch the Almighty, he's capable of doing things that are purely benevolent, entirely for the other with no return whatsoever. The closest we get is what we call Chesed Shel Emes. Chesed Shel Emes is the work of the Chevra Kadisha. When you're in that Tahara room and you're doing a Tahara for the Neshama hovering over that body that wants to see us treat that body with dignity, love, and care, and the Chevra Kadisha keep it among themselves, we don't publicize and we don't share who volunteers and who did a particular Tahara, that's the closest we get. It's a Chesed Shel Emes because it can't be repaid. The deceased, the Neshama can't repay. But even that, we get the kickback of knowing, I was on the Chavar Kaddisha, I go to the Zion other dinner, I'm doing the holy work, which is the Chesed. I tell everybody, I do the Chesed that really has no return, but has the return, the fact that I'm telling you that I do the Chesed that has no return. <laughs> so we come close, but we can't get all the way there. Kaddish Baruch Hu is purely benevolent in that he created the world. And that's what Avram Avinu realizes. He realizes, wow, I'm part of a world. I woke up this morning and I can see and feel and touch and walk and go and do. And this world is filled with bracha, an invitation, an opportunity. And that's Hashem's kindness, His benevolence, His goodness to me. I don't deserve that. This world doesn't revolve around me. There's something so much bigger than myself. And rather than look to take, I have to look to give. Rather than the world serve me, I serve it. Rather than it be a place of rights and entitlements, my life is filled with duty and obligation of how do I take the gifts I've been given and what do I do with it to make the world better? And how did Avram come to that conclusion? I'm not going to get into this now. I spoke about it this past weekend. We were in L.A. on the West Coast. I spoke about it several times in different contexts and in different ways. But how did Avram come to that conclusion? Because he had some podcast playing in the background? Because he was watching three football games simultaneously and window within window within window within window? How? Because he was scrolling on Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter and responding to the text messages and the emails and the phone calls? The Rambam says, you know how he came to this truth? Because he sat down and he carved space and time to think, to think. When is the last time any of us thought? 
I don't mean the thinking about like what to have for dinner, which outfit to wear. I mean the thinking about there's nothing on there's nothing going on around me. I've disconnected and quieted all the noise and all the distraction and all the interruption, and I am just thinking. I'm just getting lost in my own thoughts. I'm just thinking something through, trying to arrive at a conclusion. Breakthrough and creativity and growth only happens in the space that we create with intention and mindfulness to think. We have an epidemic. We get in a car, we have to turn something on. We're at a red light, I have to look at my phone. Step into an elevator, I gotta respond to a text. The ability to just be, to just be, to just exist, to just think. We struggle, we struggle. When do we have the most thoughts? Did I mention this last week? Right, falling asleep, shower, davening. It's when we're disconnected, when we actually are truly by ourselves, that's when we start thinking and we gotta write them down. Fine. So Emuna, the fact that he saw Hashem and realized this is his world, it's not about me, it's about him, that Emuna is what led him to the Kav HaTzedek, to righteousness and justice. So we think that Avram was predisposed to be this loving and kind and compassionate and good and moral and ethical person. And because he was predisposed to be and do all that, that led him to find Hashem. But it's exactly the opposite, says the Rambam. Revolve is pointing out that for the Rambam, it's exactly the opposite. He saw and felt Hashem, he realized there's something bigger and he said, wow, what does that mean about me? If there's a bigger picture and a higher calling and a bigger being and an authority I answer to, what does that mean for my life? What does that mean for my life? What are my responsibilities? And in what way am I accountable? And how am I supposed to contribute to this world? And what is my mission? And what is my purpose? And why am I here? I have conversations all the time with people who say, Rabbi, I need you to inspire me. I gotta spend more time with you. I need you to inspire me. I'm not inspired. I wanna be inspired. I need to do. So I say, I'm happy to do that. I'll tell you what, why don't you start doing? And then we'll get together and I'll try to add the inspiration. I don't wanna do. I do the things that work for me and that mean something for me, but that other stuff, it's minutiae, it's details, it's arbitrary, it's rules, it doesn't do anything for me. So you ever have the conversation, and this is an epidemic also, a plague with young people, who will only do things that do something for them, and if you can't, well, wearing tefillin doesn't do anything for me, I don't, I don't wear tefillin anymore. This doesn't do anything for me. I, it used to be that you did things not because they do something for you, but because that's what you're supposed to do. And sometimes that that's what you're supposed to do is that your family, you grew up in a home where you were taught that's what you're supposed to do. That's what a mensch does. That's derecheretz. It's pasnish to not do it or pasnish to do things the wrong way. It used to be you were driven and motivated to do the right thing because that's how we were raised. But it also used to be that there was a sense of yiras haromimus or at least a yiras haonesh. You say, you know why I do the right things? Because God created me. And whether I like it or not or want to do it or not, he has expectations of me. And I have to do it and I'm accountable if I'm not. When that gear, when the convert is in the mikvah and we ask them a series of questions before they dunk and emerge anew, born again as a Jew, among the questions that we have to ask them, do you believe in schar va'onesh? Do you believe in the system of reward and punishment? Do you believe that we are accountable for the decisions and choices we make in this world and in our lives? And if they say no, I, I believe that I can do what I want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else and it gives me pleasure which is the new standard of 2019, soon to be 2020. The new standard of the 21st century of whether I should do something or not is not what's expected of me. 
Not what's moral and ethical and right. Not what has my family taught me. Not what does God want from me. The new standard to measure which every decision we make and everything we do is simply, will it hurt anyone else and does it bring me pleasure? If it makes me happy and it doesn't hurt anyone else, I'm all in. No reason I shouldn't do it. Ah, what about the fact that maybe there's a God? Eh, he wants me to be happy as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. That's what people really believe. And to a degree, it's true. God does want us to be happy. But he did create. I also want my children to be happy. But if my kid sticks his finger in the outlet, I'm going to slap his hand. Because just because I want him to be happy, not because, because I want him to be happy, I don't want him to do things which he doesn't realize in his age and at his stage are actually damaging and destructive for himself. So I have to hold them accountable if he's going to do it. And it's because God wants us to extract the greatest happiness and the greatest pleasure from this world that he created a system and a platform and a format of living a life which will yield the greatest purpose, the greatest meaning, and the greatest happiness. He doesn't want us to stick our finger in the outlet. And when we eat the wrong things or look at the wrong things or say the wrong things or go the wrong places or do the wrong things, we're sticking our finger in the spiritual outlet. And we may not feel that shock immediately, but we're going to hurt ourselves. So God created the world and he created us not to restrict us or constrict our lives, not to punish us, but exactly the opposite. The Ramchal writes in Mesil Sasharim, and it's based on a Pasuk in Tehillim, that Hashem created the world, why? Lehis aneg al Hashem. The word oneg means pleasure. Oneg Shabbos. Pleasure. Lehis aneg al Hashem means God created the world in order to feel pleasure. And you know what the greatest pleasure that we can get is? The greatest high that you can have is to get high on God. Every other high doesn't last. It's inauthentic. It's counterfeit. It disappears. It's short-lasting. It's fake. The greatest and most authentic and the most lasting and transformative high that we can ever get is to get high on God. Get high on God. Get high on a niggin, on a Dvar Torah, on a Kumsitz. Get high on the, on the Swiss Alps. Get high on the Grand Canyon. Get high on Amuna. Get high in seeing and feeling Him in our lives to know that truth in our kishkas. That is L'Hisaneg al Hashem. That's why He created the world. So it's counterintuitive, says the Rambam, says Ravoba in the Rambam. It's not that Avram Avinu cultivated himself to be a selfless person, and then once he was selfless, oh, he said, you know, my instinct, my intuition is not to care about myself. I'm a giver. I always care about others. Oh, look at that. There's a God I could care about. That's not how it happened. It was the opposite. Avram Avinu discovered there's a God. Wow. There's a Hashem. And when he sees that there's a Hashem, then he says, well, what does that mean for me? It means that my standard for making decisions in life is not what brings me pleasure and doesn't hurt people. My standard is, if there is a God, what does he want from me? What do I owe him? What are his expectations of me? And how will I be accountable? And that's the attitude that we're all meant to have towards halacha, towards his system. I'm sorry to be direct and blunt, although not so sorry, but that's what's missing in our community, I don't mean the Boca Raton community, I mean our even Orthodox community, which is filled with trying to do, so to say, the right things. But where's the relationship with Hashem? Where's the sense that when I do the right things, it yields a closeness and intimacy and affection, a relationship? And when I do the wrong things, I'm in the doghouse. In a healthy marriage, you don't not do the wrong things because you'll be sleeping on the couch. You don't not do the wrong things because you won't be allowed to go play golf with your buddies on Sunday, you'll be punished. In a healthy marriage, you don't do the wrong things because you don't want to drive a wedge between you and your spouse who you love and admire and want to feel connected to. 
And the greatest pleasure of marriage is not because the other party cooked your favorite dinner, so you love that food. The greatest pleasure in the depth of marriage is the feeling of closeness, of love, of intimacy, of affection, of unconditional acceptance. All those feelings that a healthy marriage is meant to have, that's the reward of marriage. It's not some external reward. So when you do the right things in marriage, it's not because you get some external reward. And to not do the wrong things is not because there'll be some external punishment. There is an internal implicit reward and punishment system. When I do the right things, I have the pleasure of feeling in love and on a high and walking on air and feeling so connected and so close with someone else I care so much about. And when I do the wrong things, and when I've driven a wedge, and when I've made the wrong choice, and I've distanced myself from that person, the punishment is not some external punishment. You're grounded, you can't play golf with your buddies for a month. It's not an external punishment, you're sleeping on the couch. It's not an external punishment, we're eating milchiks for the rest of your life. It's not some external punishment. That was like a death sentence. It's not some capital punishment like that, but rather the punishment is the person that I love and care so much about, I feel so distanced from. I've hurt. They want nothing to do with me. I feel this wedge, this awkwardness. I feel this friction, this tension. So the same is true in our relationship with Hashem. When we do the right things and we live the right way and we make the right choices, is there an external reward? Kaddish Baruch Hu promised it to us. It's going to rain in the right time. It's going to rain so that we have food to eat that grows on the farm. And it's going to rain, like make it rain, like the stock market's going to go up, like your clients are going to pour in. Of course, we're promised some form of a reward. But the greatest reward is I'm in a relationship with Hashem. I'm walking on air. I'm cloud nine. The people who live and breathe emuna, they may have nothing in their lives, but they have everything because they have emuna. And the people who don't have emunah, who are making the wrong choices, who don't feel Hashem's presence when they're choosing what to watch, what to eat, where to go, how to behave, what to do and work in business, filling out the tax return, what to share over coffee with their friends, whether to gossip. person who doesn't feel that Hashem is sitting right next to me, that He's present, doesn't realize that the distance that they've created is the very punishment. So, unfortunately, this Western mindset has crept into our community where we say, you know, I'm kosher at home, I eat out. I'm not careful how I dress modestly. I'm not careful about if I gossip. I'm not careful about what I do in business. I'm not careful about these details about Shabbos, separating the jelly beans. Because as eh, minutiae, details, God really just cares if I'm a good person and I'm a good person and beyond that, He wants me to be happy. I'm so sorry to break it to you. That's not true. It's not true. And maybe it takes a hard look in the mirror and I want to be very, very, very clear in explaining. That it's not all or nothing. I'm not here telling you either be super Jew, perfect Jew, or just walk away, you might as well give it all up. It's not all or nothing. Please do not misquote, do not misunderstand me, that if you're not going to do everything and not do everything correctly, then don't bother doing anything. I'm not saying that. Can I be more clear about that? I'm not saying that. Whatever one does, it's amazing. It's fantastic. None of us have a perfect marriage and we're going to alienate our spouse and we don't see eye to eye on everything. But to whatever degree do we see eye to eye, it's helping our marriage. Whatever you do, it's wonderful and it's great and it's contributing to your special relationship with Hashem. But at least stop fooling yourself and lying to yourself to say that Hashem just wants you to be a good person. He gave us 613 things He wants. My spouse can tell me, here's a list of 25 things I want. And I say, but well, I'm only prepared to do 20 of them. And our relationship will be a 20 out of 25. And that's okay because you also need to give in. I'm not ready to do all 25. I'll do 20 out of 25. But at least I want to admit that you've asked me to do the 25. You've expressed and articulated your needs to me. Hashem has not been ambiguous with us. He gave us a Torah that has 613 mitzvahs. He gave us a Shulchan Aruch, a code of law. And He says, here's the life. It's an ambitious life. But here's the ideal and model life I want you to live. 
in your interpersonal relationships, in your relationship with me, and in your relationship with yourself, maybe the most important one in your life, which is too often neglected for another time. But Hashem has not been ambiguous or unclear. Here are my expectations. You're only ready to do 20 out of the 25 things I've asked you to do? Okay, I love you. I love you unconditionally. We can have a great relationship. But at least admit, at least acknowledge that I've asked you to do 25 things. That no, I didn't tell you do whatever makes you happy as long as you're a good person. As a parent, I don't just tell my children do whatever you want as long as it makes you happy, as long as you're a good person. I say also you have to clean your room. <laughs> and also you have to brush your teeth. And also you have chores in the house. And also you have to be loyal to your siblings. I also have expectations of you. And you may not be prepared to keep all of them, but at least know that I have those expectations. At least be honest with yourself. And we need to be more honest with ourselves about Hashem's expectations with us. And if we really want to be invested in that relationship and we really want to yield that closeness, and that intimacy, well, then the more things that we're doing, the more we're meeting those needs, the more we're fulfilling those expectations, the closer we're going to feel. So let's at least admit it and let's at least work on it. The truly fully observant person says, in principle, I'm committed to the totality of Torah and halacha. I just struggle. So when I got that really, really, really juicy piece of Lashon Hara, I know Lashon Hara is wrong. And I agree Lashon Hara is wrong. And I admit Lashon Hara is wrong. Heck, I give the sheer about Lashon Hara being wrong. But sometimes, what could I do? I've got juicy Lashon Hara and I share it because that's a failure and a fault in me. The truly observant person says, I know you're not supposed to talk in davening. I know you're not supposed to be on your phone during the week during davening. But what can I do? I have a Yitzhahara and I struggle. The person who institutionalizes their Averos, who says, no, I dress how I want, I eat what I want, I say what I want, I go where I want, I do what I want. They've institutionalized the fact that they're neglecting Hashem's expectations should at least be honest about that and admit where they are and what they're striving for. So again, I want to be clear. Whatever we're doing is wonderful. And we're living in a world where it's so easy to ignore everything and walk away that to whatever degree that we are being obedient and mindful of Hashem's expectations, it's amazing, it's beautiful, kol it's wonderful, Hashem should bless you, you should be proud, it's amazing. However, wherever we're falling short, let's not at least lie to ourselves that where we're falling short, it's because God doesn't really care. Let's at least admit where we're falling short, we should be working on. And that that too is an expectation of his. And that if we want to feel that connection, that closeness, and that intimacy, it's about, it's about doing that. So, again, Revolve is saying in the Rambam, Avram didn't say, I'm a good, kind, selfless person. I look to see others in my life. Oh, look, there's God. It's the opposite. He said, oh, look, there's God. Now, what kind of person should I be? Oh, look, there's something bigger than myself. Oh, look, there's Amuna. Hashem exists. Hashem exists, I can lean on Him and turn to Him. And even when it feels I have nothing else in my life, I have Hashem. Yeah. So, we went, I, I, I'm probably going to write about it this week, but we went, um, last week we had a staff meeting, we had some new members of our staff, and as an icebreaker we went around and I suggested, just trying to get to know new people, everyone should share who's a hero of yours, who's somebody that you would love to meet in your life that you've never met. So we went around and I shared that, um, I'd learned about and previously written about, but I never met Rabbi Yitzhi Hurwitz, an amazing Chabad rabbi who lives in California, who was vibrant and dynamic and active and filled with love and goodness and kindness, and then was struck with ALS and has uh, degenerated so far to the point that now the only muscle he can move in his entire body are his eyes. 
and he's paralyzed. He lies in bed, but through the movement of his eyes, he's able to, with uh, modern technology, type on a screen. He publishes a weekly Dvar Torah, which is just extraordinary. So I mentioned that. Anyway, we went around. Everybody else mentioned who they want to meet. And then somebody on the staff said, hey, aren't you going to L.A. this week? Why don't you go see him? He said, you know, that's a great idea. So his wife had previously spoken here, you may remember. And Yecheved's in touch with her, texted her. So this past Friday, Erev Shabbos, Yecheved, a few of our kids and I went to go see Rebiti Horowitz in his home in L.A. And if you need an injection of emuna, of faith, you know, you talk about somebody who, by all other measures, has n- literally nothing in life. Could you have less if you can't move anything in your entire body other than your eyes? He is paralyzed in every muscle in his body but his eyes. And yet, when you interact with him, you'd think he's the wealthiest, happiest, luckiest person alive. Now again, I don't know, I'm not in his internal thoughts and in the middle of the night and how is he feeling and thinking, and I'm sure he's only human, I have no doubt. But in his, in his effort to project to the world and to impact the world and to illuminate the world, it's not woe is me or why me, it's emuna. It's everything about Hashem. He painstakingly has to write every word. You know how long it takes to type with his eyes and then backspit and then type every word, every sentence. So we were there for even just a moment when all of a sudden his computer says, Yocheved, tell me about your children. Mm. Not, not let me tell you about me or my pain or my suffering, how I got to this. Tell me about your children. Then he focused his eyes on, on our little Shai, our seven-year-old, our son. And he said, share a Dvar Torah. So Shai told him about the Parsha, and then he pressed play on the Dvar Torah he had written on his screen. And then he told his aide, bring the children some candies. Because we had visited him, how could you not give them some, some candies? And we had an interaction, and it takes such effort. There's so many lessons, maybe I'll, I'll write more of them. But when you walk away from, from an, a great person like that, and he didn't have to choose this, there was a juncture in his life he wrote about in one of his, in one of his posts where um, when he was no longer able to breathe on his own and he had to decide whether he was going to live life on a trach or he didn't want such a future. He would have been justified. We know others who chose to walk away, not to live that life, not to do that to their family. But he literally, he had the choice and he chose life. You cannot be able to move one muscle in your body, but through Amuna you're alive. And you can be able to move everything in your body. But with no Amuna, you're walking around dead even while you're alive. person who has forfeited and thinks it's all about them, arrogance and envy and self-centeredness and narcissism, a person who's filling the world with darkness is dead even while they're alive. And the person who, the song he wrote is called Shine a Little Light, the person who's trying to illuminate the world and shine light through their disposition and their perspective and their faith and their amuna could not be able to move a muscle in the body and they're transforming, they're illuminating, they're literally lighting up the entire world. It was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. That's what a life of Amuna can do. A life of Amuna can convince you that you could have nothing and you have everything. And a life without Amuna can convince you that you have everything but make you believe that you have absolutely nothing. That's the difference of what this, <coughs> what this means. I was going to get into Hanukkah because rumor has it it's starting next week. <laughs> and the role of Amuna in Hanukkah, maybe we'll get into it next Wednesday hmm, because we are out of time. But that's really what Hanukkah is about. Hanukkah is about shine a little light. It's about spreading the light and dispelling the darkness. And the kavana, the thought that we're supposed to have while we're lighting those candles of that menorah is to shine that light. <coughs> but what is the light that we're shining? 
How are we illuminating the world with the light of the Hanukkah candles? <clears throat> so, the way we're doing it is with Amuna. Al Nisim, Al Nisim, Pirsume Nisa. The purpose, the goal of the Hanukkah is to spread a miracle. Why am I spreading a miracle? Because I've got the greatest story and it's going to get me the greatest followers and likes and retweets and reshares and reposts and I'm going to become a celebrity and an influencer because I have a great story. So Pirsume Nisa, I'm going to share an amazing story because it's going to get me a lot of attention. Of course not. That's not why Pirsume Nisa. Why Pirsume? Do you ever stop to ask yourself? Hanukkah, we're publicizing the miracle. <coughs> Everything about where we put the, mir- the menorah is our best effort to most effectively publicize the miracle. Why are we publicizing the miracle? Why? Why? Publicizing the miracle is about declaring, screaming from the rooftops, hey world, that's ignorant and neglectful and thinks that everything is simply coincidence, chance, randomness and nature. Hey world, I'm here to testify it's not true. I'm here to tell you and testify to you that the world is filled with emunah. There's a Hashem. There's a Hashem. I'm here to testify to you through the miracle that happened to me that Hashem intervenes and intercedes with this world, that the world is filled with miracles. Hanukkah is in my window, in my doorpost, in a parade, in the public square. I want to tell a world that is ignorant and neglectful that there's a God that subscribes to randomness and chance in nature, you're wrong. You're wrong. God is the guiding hand in the unfolding of history, and God is the guiding hand who will unfold our destiny. And I am here to light my menorah. Darkness is the absence of God. Light, the illumination I'm trying to bring, is the presence of Shashra Sashkina, is the presence of God. So the kavana when I light my menorah is I'm lighting a candle and another candle and another candle because I'm Pirsume Nisa. I'm telling the world through my candles, through my light, the light that I'm bringing to shine on the world is there's a God. He has expectations of us. We have responsibilities to Him. But He also loves us and supports us. And He is directing everything. He's calling all the shots. That's what my menorah is. We'll get into next week. Maybe that's why I put my menorah where I put it opposite the mezuzah. The menorah and the mezuzah go together. Because the mezuzah is screaming the same thing. The mezuzah says when you're walking into your house that you're not walking into some secular mundane house. The mezuzah tells you, kiss that mezuzah. We don't actually have a mucker. The Gemara doesn't talk about kissing the mezuzah. The Rambam talks about touching the mezuzah. The whole idea of touching the mezuzah is a story that comes from Unclus. One more minute. The Romans sent <coughs> legions to go arrest Unclus, the gear of the convert for the fact that he had converted, he abandoned their way and he joined Judaism. So they arrested him and on the way out of the house, he said, just one moment, and he stopped and he touched the mezuzah. And they said, what's that? He said, what's that? Come, let me give you a cup of coffee. We'll go in a minute. You'll arrest me in a minute. Let me tell you about the mezuzah. And in the end, they stayed and they converted. So the Romans sent two more guards. And on the way out, he touched the mezuzah and they said, what's that? Oh, what's that? Come, sit, have a ragalach. I'll tell you about the mezuzah. And they converted. It happened three times, and the Romans said, forget about it. Not only are we not gaining unclus, we're losing our soldiers, but they left him. So based on this, the Rambam quotes the practice. When you walk by the mezuzah, there's no source to kiss it, but there is a source to touch the mezuzah. Actually, I saw last week in Rav Yashiv's newsletter of his Piske Halacha, Rav Yashiv didn't touch the mezuzah or touch a Sefer Torah when he kissed it. He kept it a little bit as a distance. Why? because he cared about germs and he didn't want to get sick. And everybody else touches the mezuzah and the Torah. So when you cut, you can, you can give an air kiss, an air touch to the mezuzah or to the Sefer Torah. That's how Rabbi Yashir Paskins. Anyway, so what is the mezuzah declaring? 
When you walk into your home, the mezuzah is declaring, you're not walking into some secular mundane space. You're walking into a place where Hashem is felt. You're walking into a religious site. You're walking into a temple, a mikdash ma'at. You walk into your home, you're walking into a place of godliness, of sanctity, of holiness. You're walking into a place where you should feel elevated, feel His presence. And now choose what you're going to look at on the internet or what you're going to watch on TV. Now choose what you're going to say at the dinner table. Now choose the decor of your home. Now choose what you're going to wear when you get dressed in the morning. Because Hashem is here in your home. So the mezuzah and the menorah are on opposite sides of the door. Why? The Gemara says, the mezuzah goes on the right. Why? Because we always give preference to the right over the left. So since the mezuzah is already on the right, we put the menorah on the left. But I saw a magnificent insight. Rabbi Shlomo has a beautiful insight. He says the truth is both of them are on the right. The mezuzah is on the right side when you're coming into the house. And the mezuzah is on the right side. Why? When you're going out of the house. When I come into the house, I touch or kiss the mezuzah to remind me this is not a secular space. This is where Hashem can be found. And when I walk out of my house, the menorah is on the right side to remind me that while I go to the public sphere, I carry the light of the menorah. My mission, my job is to make a kiddush Hashem. I'm trying to illuminate the world and shine a little light and change the world to dispel some of that darkness. Wishing everyone a great week and a Freilich and Hanukkah.